0: It can be complicated, right? Relationships. Um, How many of you guys, if you were here last week, how many of you took my advice and read the Song of Solomon before watching the Super Bowl? Anybody? Man, man, guys. Bad call. You you really should. You thought Pete Carroll made a bad call last week? I was trying to help you guys out. Um, So we dive into this important topic. Relationships is, you know, relationships, the subject of relationships is so absolutely vital um, that 90% of the issues that arise in a church and in a relationship or in a, you know, in a marriage have to do with how do we relate to one another? Like, what is the basis for how we learn to relate to one another? Um, And our culture, a lot of times, doesn't provide answers that sort of get us across the finish line. Our culture, a lot of times, doesn't provide answers that are satisfying and that are effective and they have the results that we really, really want for ourselves. In fact, um, I mentioned last uh, time we talked on this subject um, a commercial for the Lexus RX. And it, this was on a commercial last year. And the, the commercial is really surprising. There's a sort of a surprise ending Um, The commercial opens in this really swanky kind of hotel bar. And, you know, everybody's kind of dressed to the nines. Uh, There's a New York band called The Figs playing in the background. The women are all very fashionable. The men are in suits and ties. And everybody's just hanging out, having a good time. And then the camera cuts to a man at, at the party who looks across the room. And he notices this very attractive woman. She glances over at him. He glances at her she smiles. He sort of confidently swaggers over to, uh, to the little circle where she is speaking with a group of other women. Uh, he comes in. He introduces himself. He's very smooth. Everybody's sort of talking now, cross-talking, and he catches her eye, and he sort of tosses his head as if to say, let's get out of here, right? And so the two of them sort of stroll out of this bar, and then we cut to the exterior of the bar, and the man and the woman jump into the man's shiny new Lexus, which happens to be just sitting right outside the bar, um, perfectly located. And then they just drive through the city streets. They they go to this diner, and they're at this cool vintage diner, and they're talking, and he's cracking jokes, and she's laughing. Then they're at a pool hall, and like, she sort of looks at him flirtatiously as she sinks the eight ball into the corner pocket. And then they end up at a carnival, which is always a little strange to me, because it's probably like two in, two in the morning at this point. But they're at a carnival, and they're riding the carousel, and then he makes the move. He sort of swoops down, kisses her on the neck. Very romantic. Next shot, we're out at a, uh, a picturesque sort of bridge scene, and they're looking over the water. The lights are, you know, twinkling in the night sky. It's kind of cold out there. He puts his jacket over her. He pulls her tight. Romance is picking up here. Um, then, next shot, they pull up to her apartment. And they're looking at each other, and he's about to drop her off. And then she gives him this nod, like, you know, you can come in, right? So then they bound up the, st- the stairs. I don't know where they are. They're over there. This is very shadowy. Oh, they're there. Um, they, uh, <laughs> wrong apartment. Oh, that would be bad. Um, um, so they go, they go into the apartment, and then um, there's sort of this time-lapse photography, right? The night turns into day and the car is still parked outside. So the message is, you know, he spent the night, um, and he's there with her. The camera then cuts inside. It pans up on the bed, and we find the man and the woman. They're sort of cuddled up next to each other in this warm embrace. All right, so so far there are no surprises in this commercial, right? This is kind of par for the course in terms of what we would expect from a contemporary American commercial, Right A couple they see each other, two people strangers they 're attracted to each other, they have a few drinks, they have a few laughs, they end up you know having a, a, a one night stand, a tryst of some kind but then here 's the refreshing and surprising twist as the couple are lying in bed in this commercial it 's the next morning, and then we see these two little children come bounding in the room and they hop up on the bed with them, and we see from the interactions. That this isn't a random hookup. This is actually a husband and wife, and they were out on a date the night before, and these are their children. And we go, oh, wow, that's so surprising, right? And, and the surprising part is that it's that surprising to us that we, would, that we would just totally be blown away by, like, a married couple going out, having some fun, shooting some pool, going on a date, coming home, and having some intimacy and romance with one another. We're like, that seems bizarre, right? <laughs> the Scriptures describe marriage in this really powerful beautiful intimate way where uh, you know where a man and a woman they come together the the image in the Hebrew Bible in the, in the in the Old Testament is it says that a man will leave his mother and father and he will cleave unto his wife and the two of them will become one flesh and the image there you know in in, in Hebrew is is almost like the skin to a bone, right? They're, they're different, but they're so intricately related. They're sort of inextricably tied together. And the Bible sort of promotes this beautiful, fulfilling, enjoyable, passionate relationship for us, for those of us who follow the teachings and the precepts of the scripture. But our culture, I think, largely is very skeptical and very cynical, and very suspicious of the teachings of the Bible. And and we can't put that all on the culture and say, well, okay, it's all their fault, right? The church, us, Christians, those of us who call ourselves Christians and pastors, we have not done a terribly good job over the last several hundred years, of giving a full, complete, beautiful, accurate picture of what the Bible actually teaches about marriage, sex, dating, romance, relationships. We have not done a good job at at it. We've traditionally been sort of the church of no, the church of don't, right? And so And so there are a lot of ideas and conceptions about the Bible that just are not accurate. And I'm going to give you just a few of those and see if you can relate to them. So number one is that people, you'll often hear people say, look, the Bible is just really sexually repressive, right? The Bible is sexually repressive. It's all about guilt. It's all about shame. It's all about, you know, it's the great, you know, it's the great killjoy of literature. Uh, Don't do this. Don't do that. If you have your um, your uh, bulletin, you can follow along and, and fill these these blanks in, or you can just listen. But um, they're they're there for you if you want them. So I want to push back on this idea that the Bible is just this sort of sexually repressive book, right? Because here's the problem: if we are not Christians and we're considering, you know, and when we're involved in a, a relationship. Then and we believe that the scripture is this repressive, restrictive, restraining kind of force. We're not going to turn to it in our most important time of need. We're going to turn to a lot of other messages and a lot of other voices, and we'll never turn to the Bible. So we need to sort of re, we need to set the record straight on what the scripture teaches. Let me ask you this: Do you know what the very first command? that God gives to human beings is the very, very first command recorded in the Bible, the very first commandment that God says, do something. What is it? Yeah. Genesis 1, 28, God says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You know what he's talking about, right? I mean, you know, you know, how, that's, you know how that happens, right? The very, there's no don'ts here. There's no no's. The very first commandment that God gives to human beings is find one another, engage in, you know, intimate, loving, sexual relationship, make babies, knock yourself out, go for it. That's the very first commandment in the Bible. That does not strike me as a particularly repressive position. And then um, I I, I mentioned this last week, uh, but I'm going to go ahead and read you a portion of the Song of Solomon today. The Song of Solomon is Holy Scripture. It is right in the middle of the Bible. Um, It is a love poem written by King Solomon, and it's about a a man and a woman, a lover and and, and a beloved. Uh, And the structure of the poem is sort of interesting because there's this guy who's the lover, and then he has this woman, that is, and she's the beloved. And then there's this sort of chorus of women. They're called the Daughters of Jerusalem. And they're kind of on the sidelines going... Go for it. You know, I mean, they're like sort of cheerleading on this couple in their romance. Um, So it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating poem. And I think that the, the reason that I want to read this to you is I really, really, really want to convince you that the Bible is has got a a great expansive view of relationships and intimacy and sexuality. And that needs to be known. That needs to be understood. And then you can decide whether or not to accept its precepts and its principles, but you you need to have the opportunity to accept them or not accept them with a fair and accurate picture of what they are. Does that make sense? All right. Okay, I'm just going to read you a a portion of the Song of Solomon. Here's how the poem goes. The man says to the bride, he says, You have stolen my heart, my sister, my bride. You have stolen my heart with one glance of your eyes, with one jewel of your necklace. How delightful is your love, my sister, my bride. How much more pleasing is your love than wine and the fragrance of your perfume more than any spice. Your lips drop sweetness as the honeycomb, he says. My bride, milk and honey are under your tongue. You are a garden.'" Locked up, my sister, my bride. You are a spring enclosed, a sealed fountain. Your plants are an orchard of pomegranates with choice fruits. So there's some imagery going on here, guys. There's some stuff going on. Okay? Then she says, Let my beloved come into his garden and taste his choice fruits. Then he says, I have come into my garden, my sister, my bride. I have gathered my myrrh and my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb and my honey. I have drunk my wine and my milk. And she says, My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among ten thousand. His head is purest gold. His hair is wavy and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by the water streams, washed in milk, mounted like jewels. His cheeks are like beds of spice, yielding perfume. His lips are like lilies dripping with myrrh. His arms are rods of gold set with topaz. His body is like polished ivory. His legs are pillars of marble set on bases of pure gold. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend. Powerful imagery of a beautiful, intimate, loving. Are you guys, like, sweating under the collar right now? You're kind of like, whoo. It's, it's, you know, the the scripture is describing love and marriage and this relationship in these very not repressive ways. Like, if you read that, and then you walk away saying, yeah, yeah, the Bible is, is, is is really sexually repressive. I can't help you, man. I mean, because that is, and that's the tame stuff, guys, just so you know. We just put the tame stuff in there. The, uh, what I'm saying is this. It's absolutely vital. It's absolutely important that if we are going to come to the Bible for relationship help, that we have a clear understanding of what the, the Bible truly has to offer for us. Okay? Uh, another um, sort of criticism that we'll often hear Uh, about the Bible is that the Bible is sexually naive, okay? It's sexually naive, Um, and this argument tends to go like this. People will say, well, you know, the biblical writers, uh, particularly the Apostle Paul, were not aware of the kinds of uh, relationships and, and sexual dynamics that are happening today in our culture because they weren't happening in, in their culture. And so the Bible doesn't really address these kinds of sexual relationships and dynamics, right? Because, the, because Paul was naive to the kinds of relationships that we have now. So I would just again, push back on that premise by saying that the Apostle Paul and, and the other writers were surrounded by Greek and Roman culture. Greek and Roman culture was very metropolitan. It was very sophisticated. Every kind of any sort of scrap, you know you just do a basic uh, review of history. Um, you'll see that the kinds of, of relationships and relationship dynamics that we have today are the exact same as the ones that they had back then. There's nothing new under the sun. It's not like suddenly humans have changed and now we do things differently than we did then. So the Apostle Paul, whether you agree with his premise or not, is one thing, but it's not accurate to say, you know what, he's just sexually naive. He's not actually speaking to us today because he doesn't understand the kinds of relationships that we have. That's not accurate. He does understand. He's, he's probably far less naive than any of us. He was trained in classical Greek ethics, literature, philosophy, um, and, you know, he traveled the world. He was a very, very worldly guy in the sense that he understood everything that was going around in the culture at that time. Um, so I just, I just want to push back on that criticism of the Scripture. And then the final one is that um, the Bible is sexually outdated, a lot of people will say, yeah, fine, you know, it, it, it had a lot of precepts. It had a lot of principles. It had a lot of, you know, ideas, but those were for a different time. The Bible is old. It's outdated. It was, you know, written 2,000 years ago, and this is, you know, this is, we're contemporary now. You know, we're modern. We're post-modern. We're postmodern We're, like, way down the path. And I would say this, uh, if, if a person believes that uh, relationally, and emotionally and in terms of our sexual relationships that we have evolved and improved as a society i want to i want i want to challenge that because i'm not sure in fact i'm not confident at all that we have improved beyond the new testament church when it comes to how we relate to one another right i mean if you look at the statistics in our culture on divorce and rape, and teen pregnancy, and STDs, and sexual assault, and sexual abuse, it doesn't make a, it doesn't provide evidence that we have somehow progressed far beyond what was happening in the first century church. It just doesn't, I'm not compelled by that evidence. And the second part of that is that just because the scripture is old doesn't mean that it's not valid and important for us today. In fact, the age, the fact that it is as old as it is and the fact that it continues to impact billions of people around the world today in positive ways and it brings love and joy and hope into their lives may be evidence that it actually has some merit and some value and it should be considered by those who are critical of it because there's something powerful about a text that was written 2,000 years ago and when you read it, you see yourself in it and it resonates with you, and it reverberates with your heart, and when you follow its instructions, it transforms you, and it changes you. There's something powerful about that. So I'd say all of that as a, as a preface to say if you are critical or cynical or skeptical or suspicious of the Scripture's teaching on marriage, sex, dating, and relationships, then at least approach this with an open mind. Approach it with an open mind and say, well, maybe there's something here that could benefit me. If, you know, if you're golden, if everything is perfect in your life, then you, you, know, you have no, no, no need for this, right? But if it's not, then I would urge you and challenge you. Open up your heart and like, let's see if there's something in here that might be able to touch something in your life and make it just a little bit better. Is that fair? Is that fair? Okay, so I want to dive into some of the basic teachings on the scripture about these issues, love, sex, marriage, dating, um, and relationships. And the first one is this. The bedrock foundation for all human relationships, according to the scripture, is love. That is the bedrock foundation for all human relationships. There's a, there's a very large mountain that towers over the city of Cape Town, South Africa. And according to geologists, this mountain is one of the oldest and one of the strongest mountains on the planet. It's six times older than the Himalayas. It's five times older than the Rockies. Okay, scientists gauge this mountain uh, in the hundreds of millions of years old. Now, here's a picture of it. It's called Table Mountain. So this is Cape Town, South Africa, and this mountain is right here. The thing about this mountain is it's made of absolutely pure, almost pure quartzite, which is a very hard mineral, And this mineral withstands every imaginable kind of erosion, wind and rain and hail and sleet and snow. And over millions of years, the softer soils around this mountain have eroded and fallen away. And so now this mountain that's made out of this very strong quartzite provides shelter and soil and flora and fauna to the city under its shadow. Why do I... Are we into geology now? So uh, where are you going? So the scripture describes love as the bedrock foundation for all human relationships. And when everything else falls away, when your strength and your wealth and your power and your... When all of that falls away, there's love. And that is the basis for every human relationship on the planet. In fact... In that letter to the Corinthians that we started last week, the Apostle Paul says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I'm a resounding gong. I'm a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give all that I possess to the poor and I surrender my body to the flames, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. In other words, Paul says, everything minus love equals nothing. Your wealth, your health, your strength, your job, your career, your intelligence, your prestige, your influence, your spirituality, your prayers, your fasting, your biblical knowledge, none of it means anything if you don't have love. In fact, Jesus said that the one true great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul with all your strength with all your mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. This forms the basis for every dynamic, every situation, every relationship that we're in. And the kind of love that he's describing here is 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 an agape love. And that and that is that is the love that wills the good of the recipient, right? So it's the, it, it's a love that that exudes out of you, it's a condition of your being, and the way you address other people is that you're always willing their good. Okay? You're willing their good. That's what agape love is. That's the kind of love that God pours out to us and that we pour out horizontally to other people uh, when we're living in this sort of agape love. But the problem in our culture is that we sort of mix love with all these other Dynamics, all of these other ideas. So in our culture, a lot of times, love and lust and intimacy and infatuation and desire and passion, they all become sort of mixed together and it's hard to pull them apart and understand them uniquely and separately. In fact, a lot of times, people will confuse sexual passion or sexual desire or sexual attraction for love and vice versa. And they'll say things like I want to be able to love whoever I want, whenever I want, wherever I want. And what they really mean is I want to be able to express my personal desires whenever I want, wherever I want, with whomever I want. And the problem with that approach is that it fails to account for the incredible power of sexual intimacy and what that brings into a relationship. So when we express these kinds of uh, feelings and desires in our life, and we do that sort of without without having them sort of directed in, in, a, in, a, in one clear way, we can end up harming ourselves and harming others. But on the other hand, when we have it directed in the right way, then we bring joy to ourselves and to others. So let me give you just point number two, which is this. Passion, when rightly directed, will fuel your ultimate Purpose. You guys tracking with me still? Everybody, yeah. I feel like we should just break, take a deep breath, and just be like, "All right, all right. This is this is deep stuff." Um, when I was a kid, we we um, I, I worked in Idaho for a little while one summer, and um, part of what I did is I'd work on a dairy, and then I also worked in the hay fields, and I did all this kind of work as a as a teenager. And one of the things that we would do, in fact, one particular afternoon, um, we would do what are called controlled burns of a field. And what that is, is like if you have a field and it's got all this sort of like uh, weeds or, you know, uh, brush on it and you want to clear that field, then what you do is you create a perimeter around that field of either soil or water or rock and then you light that field on fire. Uh, the the perimeter, of course, is to keep the fire from leaping over and becoming a wildfire. So it's called a controlled burn. And I remember one afternoon, my uncle, I don't know why he asked me to do this. I was like 14. But um, he asked me to help him do a controlled burn of their field. And on one side of their field was this irrigation ditch. And there's water in this irrigation ditch. So we felt pretty confident that that perimeter was covered. So We got, you know, we put a perimeter around the field. We lit the field on fire. Everything was going just fine until some of the sparks from our field leaped over the irrigation ditch and caught on to the the brush of a neighboring field that was actually a slope that went up to a row of houses, including my uncle's house. And suddenly our controlled burn became a very uncontrolled burn. And the fire began to sweep up towards this row of houses along the ridge. Um, So I ran and got a hose, and we had towels and blankets, and we were able to beat the fire out, um, the wild part of the fire, and the the burn stayed controlled. Um, Paul uses, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter in Corinthians, we talked about it last week, he uses this metaphor of fire to describe the kind of passion and desire within us. So here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry, he says, than to burn with passion. So a lot of people take this passage and they say, okay, what the Apostle Paul is saying is, if you've got a lot of passion, you should get married, and that'll put it out, Right? That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. Other people might say, well, what he's saying is this passion is bad. And that's not what he's saying either. What he's saying is if you're going to have a fire in you, if you have a fire, make it a controlled burn. Put it in a relationship where it can bring warmth and nourishment and strength and intimacy, not where it can bring heartache and damage and burden, and misunderstanding, and confusion, because the reality is, in our experience as human beings, sex and sexual relationships can make you feel complete. They can make you feel happy. They can make you feel relaxed, loved, intimate, warm, connected, close, strong, peaceful, elated, joyful, exultant, content, and grateful, right? But they can also make you feel lonely and stressed and guilty and empty and tired and worried and confused and lost and judged and scared and condemned and impatient and disappointed. It's the same act, two different outcomes. Why? Because one is a contained burn. One is a contained fire and the other is a wildfire that is not that is, is not warming you, it's likely to burn you. The story, There's a great story in Exodus where Moses has this deep passion, this desire. He's, he's living as an Egyptian, but he's really an Israelite. And so he sees some of his brothers uh, that are Israelites, and he sees an Egyptian beating up one of his Israelite brothers, right? And he's got this passion inside of him. And the passion is for justice, and the passion is for freedom, and the passion is that his brothers will not be oppressed. And in this moment, Moses is a young man. Moses turns to the Egyptian who's beating the Israelite, and he, and he kills him. He kills him, and he buries him under the sand because he just expressed this passion, this desire, in a way that just was immediate for him. But what, of course, happened is that then he had to run because now he's on the hook for murder. And so he had to go out into the wilderness, and he was out in the wilderness for 40 years by himself in the wilderness without able to address the uh, the issues that, that concerned him back in Egypt. Until one day, the scripture says that God spoke to him in a burning bush, and the scri- and, and, and the Lord said to him, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. So the same thing is going on in this scripture. The same desire, the same passion is now being enacted in this moment as Moses had uh, 40 years earlier. Right? But, but now he's doing it in accordance with the principles and the precepts of God. He's not doing it just out of an, uh, out of an uncontrolled burn. Do you understand how I'm pulling that analogy together? Are you tracking with me? Amen. Um, if you can trust God with your passions and your desires, if you can wait on him, if you can trust him with, that his ways are above your ways, if you can trust him that his plans for you are better than your plans for yourself, If you can seek to rightly direct your desires and your passions in life to see God's principles fulfilled, you will see God's purpose in your life in a more beautiful and powerful way than you could have ever, ever had it happen on your own. Number three is that your identity is not based on your desires, but on Christ's deliverance. And I'm going to wrap this up with just a couple quick points here. Some of you are here today and you're thinking, look, I, you know, the way that I have lived in my life, the thoughts that I've had, the things that I've done, the things that I've said, this sort of disqualifies me from a lot of what you're talking about, right? My life has been a wildfire. My life has been an uncontrolled burn, and I would just say this to you, that the whole point, the whole purpose of God sending his son was to address that very concern, that very issue, that fear inside of you that says, you know what, I just don't think that I can, I don't think I can meet up to God's requirements. I don't think I can get there. I don't think I have the ability or the strength. And God is saying, you know what, you don't. But I sent my son to address that that problem in you. I sent my son to become sin for you so that you could become the righteousness of my son. And look, look what it says here in second Corinthians. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new is ear is here. He's saying it doesn't matter where you've been. Doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter where what you've said, the experiences that you've had. Christ has come. To be here for you and to exchange your sin for his righteousness. He's come to make you into something brand new. Not to just sort of upgrade you, but to transform you. To completely put away the old and to give you a brand new life. That is the joy of the gospel. That is the reality of the gospel. That is the truth of God's grace in a nutshell. Is that it's not about what you have done. It's about what he did for you. He's come to save you. He loves you. He's come to redeem you. He's come to put you on a path that will bring to you that true joy, that true love, that true peace, and that true fulfillment that he actually has for each and every one of us. Amen? You're not defined by your desires. You're not marked by your mistakes. You're not stuck with your sins. You're not imprisoned by your past. God's come to free you. And then this is the last one, and I'm going to close with this. Spiritual maturity is exhibited not by condemnation, but by care. Now, this point is for those who have been a Christian for a while. And this sort of stuff that I'm talking about may seem kind of remote to you. Like, well, you know, you've you've been tracking along as a Christian for a long time. You've mastered some of the principles and the precepts that we're talking about. You've you know, you sort of lived this out. And the tendency, then, can be to forget that other people are struggling and that you sort of can come off in a very sort of condemning way. And I just want to say that I am deeply, deeply grateful to be a part of a congregation where the those of you, those of us that have been Christians for a while, exhibit our Christianity, and you exhibit your Christianity in a way that is open and accepting and caring and loving and seeking to encourage and seeking to build, not seeking to destroy and distance and throw away. Because that happens all too often sometimes in churches is that we forget that the whole thing, the whole point of us being here is to love, is to experience the love of God that transforms our life and to share that love with others so that God may transform their lives. And listen uh, to um, uh, the scripture here in Galatians, it says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently. It said, carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. And what is the law of Christ? It's no, it's point number one, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How do we do that? When people are fallen, when people are broken, when people are screwing up, when people's lives are jacked up and things are messed up and they're troubled and they're struggling and they don't know what to do, we come alongside of them, we help pick them up, and we gently walk them back down the path. That's what we do as a church. That's who we are. That's our identity. That's what Christians do. So I want to say this to anyone here today that's struggling to understand and figure out this whole relationship thing. That is, we want you here. If you are struggling today, you're trying to figure out what do I do with love and desire and passion and sex and how do I do all this? We want you here, right? You don't have to get all straightened up and cleaned up to come into this place. We want you here. We want to love you. We want to encourage you. We want to nourish you. We want to put our arms around you and help you walk down the path that God has for you to bring true joy, true peace, and true fulfillment into your life. Amen? Amen turn to the ne- turn to the person next to you and just say i 'm wanted here." <laughs> Some of you are totally shocked by that you 're loved here, you really are when i um last story when i w- w- was in arizona there was a, there was a point I was a prosecutor, um, and one of the kinds of issues that I would regularly prosecute would be um domestic assault cases, Uh, and I would be in charge of um, prosecuting the, you know, the perpetrator, and the very hardest thing about prosecuting those cases was convincing the victims who were suffering and who were struggling and who were being beaten and who were being harmed in all kinds of ways. The hardest part about my job was to compel them or to convince them to open up to those of us who were there for them, we had victims' advocates, we had, you know, counselors, we had people trained to help walk them through that process, um, and it was mostly women that we represented. and And the hardest part of the job was to convince them to come forward and to walk through this process with them, with us, because time after time, uh, they would turn back to the one who caused them the greatest pain they would turn back to the ones who were victimizing them and harming them and i think a lot of times in our own lives you know we're experiencing guilt or shame or we're not doing things that we know we're doing things that we know aren't right or we're not doing things uh, that we should be doing and rather than coming to a source that brings great joy and great peace, and great truth, and great fulfillment, and great transformation in our lives, we sometimes turn around and run back to that very thing that brings us pain, and harm, and guilt, and shame. So I want to just say to you, this is a place for you. This is a a welcoming place for anyone who is struggling in any way. We want you to be here. We want to put our arms around you. We want to love you. We want to take you down the path that God has for you. Amen. 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 Let's bow our heads. Some of you today are sitting here and, you know, maybe something that was said resonates with you and perhaps you're, you wouldn't consider yourself a believer. You're sort of, you've thought about it. You're not sure uh, and you're not, you're sort of wondering whether or not uh, this is for you. I want to encourage you to open your heart today when we pray in just a minute. Just open your heart and say, God, I need you. Um, I want to invite you in. And some of you today, you know, maybe you were raised as a Christian, uh, and you've been, you know, you, you you gave your heart to the Lord at some point, but for years you've sort of been doing your own thing, and, and and you know you haven't you haven't really committed your heart, you haven't really surrendered your life to God. And when I pray in just a moment, I want to invite you to just reopen your heart and just say, Lord, I want to I want to accept you in, I want to experience you, I want to. I, I want to experience the love and fulfillment that you have for me. And then for those of you who are died in the wool Christians, you're committed, you love God, you're believers, I want to just urge you that when we pray to open your heart and say, God, how can I be a source of hope and love and encouragement and inspiration to those who are coming along behind me, those who are not as mature, those who are still struggling in ways that I no longer struggle? I want to invite you to pray that prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you today with open hearts. We come to you in the midst of a conversation about very um, intimate subjects, very sensitive subjects, subjects that touch each and every one of us, whether we're single, whether we're engaged, whether we're dating, whether we're married, whether we're divorced, whether we're widowed, wherever we are, these, these questions arise for us. How do we live out a life that really does bring true joy and true fulfillment and really does bring honor and glory to you? How do we do that? And so, God, we ask that you give each and every single one of us wisdom and grace. Open our hearts, Lord God, and give us the wisdom and grace to experience you in powerful, true, and meaningful ways. We ask, Lord God, that you would let your Holy Spirit rest in each person's life here today and that they would be transformed by your love, that they would be transformed by your grace, and that they would experience a fresh and a new love and encouragement from you. That those who are struggling in shame and guilt and depression and uncertainty and confusion, that their darkness would be lifted today, and that they would see the glorious light of your love. Father, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen um